Hello and welcome to this special episode of Bad Gaze, a podcast all about evil and complicated queer people in history. My name's Hugh Lemmy, I'm an author, and today I'm joined by Richard Power Said, who is a former Labour Party official and is also, also the author of 1997, The Future That Never Happened, a cultural and political history of the year 1997 and its influence since, which should be of special inter- interest to our listeners on account of its extended analyses of both Princess Di and the Spice Girls. Uh, we're recording this over the internet due to coronavirus restrictions, so I apologise in advance for any issues we may experience from that. But um, I think today's subject is probably one of the most influential people we've ever featured on the show, short of maybe Alexander the Great, and certainly one of the most influential people in the 20th century. Yet as a public figure, he might be amongst our least well-known. He's perhaps better known through his ism, an economic theory that came to dominate Western government politics in the decades that followed the Second World War. And indeed, uh, despite the rise of neoliberalism as a response to his ideas, his ideas still underpinned the international response to both the Great Recession that started in 2008 and also to coronavirus. He's the British economist John Maynard Keynes. Ricky, what can you tell us about Keynes? So um, there's so much to tell. And obviously, I'm going to give you a really truncated version of the story. And yes, it's going to be quite long, but hopefully um, hopefully not. Uh, it's got plenty of sex in it. That's the important thing, right? Um, we're going to start in 1883. John Maynard Keynes was born into an upper middle class family in Cambridge. He was a liberal and academic background. His father was an economist later a senior university administrator. Uh, Maynard, as he was known, um, was academically gifted, particularly in maths. And age 13, he was specially tutored so he could get into a scholarship at Eton. And um, maybe you can guess, therefore, the gay bit of his biography begins before the economics bit. Uh, He describes at school going on, Walks in which the doctrine of the resurrection of the body alternated with the problem as to whether a kiss should be followed by a cop. Uh, that's English boarding schools for you, I imagine. Uh, I, uh, his first boyfriend was called Dilly uh, and uh, went on to help. So it was called in- Dilly. Yeah, um, I think it's short for Dylan. Uh, he went on to help crack the Enigma code, uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, his second boyfriend was Daniel Macmillan, um, who was the brother of Harold, the future prime minister. And um, Daniel was going to go on to inherit the Macmillan publishing house, which would publish Maynard's earlier books. So that was convenient. Of course, you know, quite a lot of this stuff was quite kind of normal at boarding school. And I don't think we should really kind of see that in itself as being an indicator of what we might call homosexual identity. But the relationship with Daniel is often referred to as a long-term love affair, which perhaps was such an indicator. And between 1901, so that's the year that Maynard turned 18, and 1915, by which point he was 32, there was a list that Keynes made of his sexual encounters. Uh, and I know you had a few of those lists already, guys who, uh, guys who keep a record. But I'm afraid uh, this has got none of the saucy details that Roger Casement left us. So I'm sorry to disappoint you with that, Hugh. No notes on penis size. <laughs> none at all. Keynes was very boring in that regard. Um, 
And the next year after starting that record, 1902, Maynard went to King's College, Cambridge, continued to excel in maths, but did not seem to be having so much sex there. The, the sex record says 1903, nil, 1904, nil, 1905, nil. A bit sad. Uh, and this, this might have had something to do with the sexual ideology that predominated amongst posh gay men at the time, which I know you've talked a lot about on this podcast, this idea of love between men being pure, but that it was purest when it wasn't physical. Um, and clearly... Yeah, I mean, this is like... So this is like a, this is like a, um, a trope that uh, Ian Forster talks about quite a lot, right? Right, and Forster was at Cambridge a little bit later similar yeah time, similar time similar time yeah um and you know clearly it's deeply misogynistic and self-hating um because on the one hand it's saying that women are inferior on the other hand it's saying that gay sex when it's something that physically happens is disgusting um and there was a sort of secret society at Cambridge, the Apostles, that Maynard was a member of, which expounded this notion of what they called high and low sodomy. Oh, so he was in the Apostles. Yeah, yeah. Um, because that also came up in the uh, Anthony Blunt episode, right? Which is that there was a, um, a bunch of boyfriends around that time who became sort of linked in later life uh, through their membership of, of that group. Yep, and that just reflects something that um, will be a theme throughout Keynes's life, that he was surrounded by people with left-wing ideas, or maybe not surrounded by, but like he had lots of access to, um, to Marxism, to social democratic ideas, um, and he very much did not want to take those ideas on. Uh, anyway, it's 1906, he's 22, turning 23. Uh, suddenly he's gone from high sodomy to low because he's had it, having it off with Lytton Strachey, who became a Bloomsbury Group author, with James, that's Lytton's younger brother, who later became a, a very major figure in British psychoanalysis, with Arthur Hobhouse, who became a prominent Liberal MP. And with all of these boys in his sex register, uh, young Maynard, clearly had a type um, because all of these guys so far are skinny, specky, white, geeky boys like Maynard. Um, soon, though, he also starts sleeping with the painter Duncan Grant, also Bloomsbury Group, um, but not a specky, scrawny type, uh, very conventionally attractive in a kind of delicate and artistic way. Um, that's another love affair for Maynard, um, one of his greatest, um, and I think... I think no one would really blame him for that because Duncan Grant was dreamy. And I think at this point, um, like maybe it's useful actually to zoom out a little bit because it, we've got to recognise the kind of wild level of elite gay mafia construction going on. Like all of these guys become eminent members of the liberal establishment and that web just extends and extends. So, for instance, um, James Strachey, um, he was in love with the poet Rupert Brooke, who was really hot and not interested. Uh, James also had some kind of thing with George Mallory, died climbing Everest many years later, and whom Lytton, also Keynes's boyfriend, um, thought was so hot that he wrote to Vanessa Bell, 
big important painter but also Virginia Woolf's sister he wrote mon dieu George Mallory my hand trembles my heart palpitates he's six foot high with the body of an athlete by Prixateles and a face oh incredible the mystery of Botticelli the refinement and delicacy of a Chinese print the youth and piquancy of an unimaginable English boy <laughs> um, my hand is trembling and my heart is palpitating too <laughs> i don't need to know you uh, i can see it all on zoom uh mallory rebuffed Lytton, um uh, but he did have james they all fancied rupert brooke um who according to one letter from a friend of theirs was very fond of being buggered uh rupert was having a thing with their friend edward dent that was another specky scrawny etonian um who was going to become a famous musicologist so that's already quite a coterie. Yeah. To what degree do they do they like um, think of themselves as as homosexual as part of their identity, or is this still part of that same sort of English upper class? Just like um, it doesn't really count. You know, it's not really a crime because we're posh. We're doing it in a different way. Or were they sort of so thinking I'm... themselves as gay, as gay, or as well as homosexual or queer or something at the time? So I think it's different for different ones. So. Um, and also kind of changes during their lives. So quite a lot of these will kind of consider themselves, uh, I guess uh, some of them would have used the word queer um, at this point and for the rest of their lives. Someone like Mallory, though, um, you know, actually has quite an interesting journey, which I think reflects both how... um, men who are having sex with men um, at this time very much did have access to what we might call uh, a queer identity, but also understood that such identities were flexible and had a strong relationship to behaviours, not just some sort of um, internal constant identity. Um, Mallory, Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, he tells us a lot about how to interpret marriages of men who previously had sex with men marriages to women george says in a letter to lytton strakey in 1914 it can hardly be a shock to you that i desert the ranks of the fashionable homosexualists and yet i am still in part of that persuasion unless you think i have turned monogamous but you may be assured that this last catastrophe has not happened this sentiment shocks me deeply considering that i really am to be tied by the conjugal knot and actually to be blessed by the church of england but then the truth always is so shocking and probably nobody is monogamous Oh, how how modern. Yeah, how modern indeed. And also like Mallory ends up being, after dying on Everest, this um kind of invincible image of English of English masculinity, both kind of honorable and generous, uh, but also like tragic and and physically impressive. Um, you know. I think all of that just shows how uh, one person and one life can contain so much and uh, people understood this a hundred years ago. Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, And what is also, you know, a kind of a constant in English life is this um, elite community construction. Um, You know, later on after their Cambridge times, uh, Lytton Strachey had this um, pretty wild sounding S&M thing involving a mock crucifixion with a, a guy called Roger Senhouse, who was so rich that um, he was later able to turn himself into a very important publisher. 
um, Sen House had a thing with Michael Llewellyn Davis, who uh, Peter Pan was based on, um, and who was first cousin of Dashiell Du Maurier, as you are. Davis and Senhouse have both been at Oxford um, with Bob Boothby, who later became a very major Tory politician. He had a long and infamous affair with Dorothy Macmillan, who was married to that prime minister I mentioned, Harold Macmillan. So we're kind of coming full circle here. Uh, Bob Boothby, uh, when he was at Cambridge, was known as the Palladium because he was twice knightly. Uh, and later, <laughs> <laughs> later in life, uh, Ronnie Cray organised orgies for him. So, um, ah, yes, I, I remember the name. Yeah, from the Ronnie Cray episode, and I think he also features in the um, Netflix series The Crown. Right, that that affair is part of that. Oh yes, yeah. Okay, sorry, I'm supposed to th- at this point pretend that I haven't seen The Crown, aren't I? Um, not for me, not for my benefit. I love The Crown. <laughs> it's like terrible. <laughs> Um, so obviously, you know, this kind of long lineage of gossip, I'm telling you because we love gossip. Um, but I think it, I, th- I think it's also good as an indicator of a few things. Um, one, Keynes had a very interesting set around him. Some of them really creative. You've got the stalwarts of English modernism, the Bloomsbury group, I mean, um, and they were wonderfully innovative and also horribly snobbish really really fucking vile people and he actually bankrolled quite a few of them later on uh two another thing obviously there's a terrible concentration of privilege going on here which doesn't seem to have bothered maynard um but three um kind of perhaps less obvious that those privileges were very much available to some men who had sex with men you know if they had class privilege if they had race privilege they could even be out to a very wide circle of friends as long as they didn't publicize it their homosexuality i mean um and they could still be major figures of social and cultural influence so i think that just gives us a sense of like what power looks like if we have an intersectional analysis of it it's not quite as simple as like gay men were oppressed though of course they were um so as i say um as well as being part of this this uh, what we might slightly meanly call a gay mafia keynes had uh, keynes was in like all of the ridiculous university societies that included being president of a debating society the cambridge union um so he had been at university exposed to a really wide variety of ideas there was marxist um economics very much um at cambridge by then Maynard was not interested in that. Um, he was a member of the University Liberal Club. Indeed, he was its president. And the Liberal Party in the UK today, the Liberal Democrats, I mean, what can we say about them? They supported greater benefits sanctions in exchange for the Tories agreeing to a tax on plastic bags. You know, that tells you what you need to know about them. But at this point in Keynes's life, very beginning of the 20th century, parliamentary representation of the Labour movement is about to grow significantly, but it it won't overtake the Liberal Party for a couple of decades. And the Liberal Party was a mildly progressive force, um, you know, in the sense that it would shortly create the very basic beginnings of the welfare state. But also, it was like just as much a natural party of government as the Conservative Party was. So that's the kind of institution that Maynard is inserting himself into. So that, at that time, 
that time it's kind of like the moment there's sort of almost like a two-party system um but the other party is not labor it's the liberal so the labor party has just been founded so you have like a the conservatives representing the uh uh highest sort of parts of like you know landowning society and uh, a tradition etc etc and then the liberals being sort of the bourgeois well-meaning perhaps uh or slightly more progressive or like party yeah yeah, uh, but organised labour doesn't really have a look in at this point. It, there are a very small number of MPs, um, and you know, organised labour means the trade union movement, which itself is nascent. Um, yeah. and you know, the, England is, or Britain is quite behind some other countries. You know, in Germany, you have a much more um, developed uh, social democratic party. Um, I, I guess the, the, we can't quite say it's a two-party system because what the party, what like the Tories and the Liberals are, is very has fluctuated constantly over the past century and is going to start fluctuating very soon afterwards. So maybe there was a brief moment where it looked more two-party than it really was. If you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. definitely, the Liberals were a big force that um, had coagulated over the last few decades and, um, yeah, very much a party of government. Um, And also progressive, and yet we shouldn't mistake them at all for social democrats. Um, You know, like Maynard would later write in a private letter, I can be influenced by what seems to me to be justice and good sense, but the class war will always find me on the side of the educated bourgeoisie. And I think that's really important because the background to Keynes' childhood, like we're saying, you know, it's the rise of organized labor. And a couple of decades later, of course, you know, that's very much going to be the background to Keynes' efforts to improve capitalism, which is ultimately what Keynesianism is going to be about. Um, you know, the Bolshevik revolution, the increasing, the increasing strength of the Soviet Union, the rise in Britain and elsewhere of parliamentary socialism and social democracy. This was what was happening around him and yet he was going to choose to fight the corner of capitalism and i think you know like who the hell looks at that and thinks i want to dedicate myself to making capitalism more efficient well the bourgeoisie right well yeah that's true that's true but i suppose you know you did also have quite a lot of upper middle class people um you know the fabians and people like that who were exposed to radical ideas just as keynes had been and unlike keynes they chose to support organized working class movements you know instead keynes was very much a man of the status quo um he invested in the stock market that's where most of his wealth came from um and it fits and starts actually it made him very rich so as I say, liberals got into government. Um, not long after that, Keynes entered the civil service. That was 1908. He was a clerk in the India office. So that's the civil so service. So in his, his early 20s. Yep, yep. Um, and, or I guess, mid-20s by now. Um, and um, so India office that he's entered, that's the civil service department administering Britain's imperial provinces in India. Um, so, you know, he was helping to control my great-grandparents' lives from Whitehall. Um, Obviously, he's living in London at this point, um, kind of 1910, 1912, I'd say, mid-20s. He's got a couple of relationships on the go uh, with Duncan Grant and various others. There's uh, an aspiring actor, a posh journalist. Later, there's a diplomat, a stockbroker. 
So uh, very much the same kind of crowd as before. Uh, but then his- yeah, that's that's interesting because he's not like having sex with like trade, which I think a lot of guys in that position were at the time. He's still maintaining sexual relations with people he regards as his sort of class peers. That is absolutely true, and I think it's very striking. What's also striking is then that there's a sudden change. His sex diary also starts including names like, and this is direct quotes, Stable Boy of Park Lane, Lift, vo- lift Boy of Vauxhall, 16-year-old under Etna, Auburn Haired of Marble Arch. And, in the okay, next I see. Cu- and then in the next couple of years, he lists uh, Benoit Kumar Sakar, who um, was a social scientist who was going to become prominent in the Indian nationalist movement, and also, quote, Jew boy, and also the next year, Cairo. And that last one coincides with him telling Duncan Grant in a letter that he'd had sex with a woman in the Egyptian capital. So he's he's no longer having sex with just posh white men, but he's he's talking about these partners in the degrading and racist and, and very unpleasant ways that you perhaps would expect from someone in his cultural and social position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to fast forward through the next decade or decade and a half because um, it, it contains even more events than of note than in most people's lives, but. Um, it, there's much to come. So uh, after his stint in the civil service, which was brief, uh, Maynard went back into academia. He focused on maths, which was, uh, that was partly funded by his dad. He did at this point have a little bit of formal economics training, but it's quite you know, striking that there wasn't much of that. Um, he focused on Indian economic policy, uh, wrote a book about that. Um, he continues his close relationship with the Bloomsbury Group. The First World War happens. Uh, during that, Maynard is a conscientious objector, but he's already back to being a civil servant, so he's safe, uh, very successful professionally. Um, and after the war, he gets a big job in the British delegation to the conference at Versailles. He tries to get Britain to push for a more lenient treaty. He fails, uh, but he was definitely on the right side of history there because, as I, you'll get taught in school, a less punitive treaty might even have averted the rise of Nazism, though lots of big arguments about whether that's true or not. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the love of the first half of Maynard's life had been Duncan Grant, but in 1921, he's 38, and at this point, he meets somebody new. He fell in love, and it was with a woman. Uh, her name was Lydia Lopokova. She was pretty cool. Uh, she was a Russian ballet dancer. She'd been a bit of a star in the US. Uh, now she was dancing for Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, one of the great ballet companies of the early 20th century, very associated with the avant-garde. Um, they'd recently come to London. She had led something of a kind of itinerant and chaotic life. She's quite a party girl, not necessarily a particularly intellectual ballerina. Um, well, in 1921, Diaghilev put on a, an unusually conservative production of Sleeping Beauty in London. Most people hated it, did very badly, but Keynes, uh, <laughs> this guy who's pretty much only had sex with men, um, occasionally expressed infatuation with women, but said he didn't really know what to do with it. Um, 
he sat every night in the stalls, enchanted by Lydia as the lilac fairy, casting spells over the cradle. Um, I think it's a wonderfully gay way to start a heterosexual relationship. Yeah, I was going to say like this. <laughs> this this sounds it's sweet. Yeah, I'm but great. Like, yeah. Was, yeah, exactly. Great. It's um, but also slightly ridiculous. Um, he did continue another relationship uh, with a young man for a while. And there was some conflict with Lydia over that. But he and Lydia clearly loved each other. Her letters to him describe their sexual relationship in this way that just seems really like happy and healthy and a little bit crude in a very nice way. Um, she writes to him about his slender, subtle fingers, uh, her foxy lips and their vivid fluctuations. Uh, of course, you know, this relatively wealthy English economist, you know, it was probably quite an attractively stable proposition for her. And, you know, like a really creative, thoughtful guy as well. And he he was quite attractive. He's kind of got an unusual face. Like, I feel like you'd notice him, maybe. Well, he definitely doesn't seem to have struggled in terms of attracting people. I, maybe what I have to acknowledge is that he's not particularly my type. <laughs> yeah, maybe he is my type. Maybe, maybe yeah. We'll try to find you some geeky liberals here. There isn't any evidence that during the rest of their lives, um, he actually had any other partners. Um, And though they never had children, they did want them. And it's actually... um, is perhaps an opportunity for a little bit of a tangent to be rude uh, about Niall Ferguson. Because... I'm always welcome on this show, yeah, because that's well, Ben's job normally. <laughs> so for those who don't remember, uh, Niall Ferguson is the historian and author of Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World. And he doesn't mean it in a bad way. Um, Niall Ferguson was at a conference in, I think it was about kind of 2013, and he made some comments which to be fair, on the eminent wanker um, were, I think, quite offhand um, about... Um, it was, so he was linking Keynes's very famous comment that in the long run, we are all dead. Um, and he blamed the poor economic situation in 2013 um, on Keynesian economics, which was ridiculous, um, and, and kind of how short-sighted Keynesian economics was. And as Ferguson later admitted, this was wrong. In so many ways. Firstly, that famous quote about how in the long run we're all dead, um, it's not saying like, don't focus on the future. It's saying that in the distant future, we may at some point achieve an economic equilibrium. This is what his enemies, the neoclassicists said would happen. But he, Keynes is saying, it's not much point um, in focusing on that equilibrium that will be achieved supposedly by a free market if right now your free market is in the middle of a fucking crisis mm-hmm. so that's what that phrase means um it's it's kind of sarcastic you know it's, it's like secondly Niall Ferguson is wrong because the idea that Keynesian economics was responsible either for the financial crisis um or that it was uh going to be the the wrong um response to the recession that that followed it um you know it's just like fucking economically illiterate um thirdly Keynes um you know had a structural relationship with Lydia they wanted kids so Ferguson was just 
ignorant about that. And finally, people who can't or don't have children are more than able to worry about society's future. And as evidence, I present how I've felt since this fucking pandemic began. Yeah. So we can add um, bisexual erasure to Niall Ferguson's list of crimes. Yes, quite a long list. Um, Unsurprising. Unsurprising, indeed. Um, So, end of horrible imperialist historian tangent. Uh, Their relationship blossomed, um, Keynes and Lydia, um, and Lydia became a a real favourite with British audiences. She she does seem to have been a really impressive person. She was enormously talented, very unpretentious. Perhaps that reflected the fact that, unlike all of Maynard's friends, she wasn't at all posh. Um, She'd grown up in a cramped St. Petersburg flat. Her father had been born a serf, and he'd worked as a theatre usher. Naturally, the the Bloomsbury group hated her. you know, I think they were probably, well, they're definitely very uh, anxious about how unsophisticated she was, um, but also maybe worried that Maynard was going to stop financially backing their work if he got married. Anyway, 1925, they did get married. Uh, Keynes's ex-boyfriend, Duncan Grant, was the best man, which is rather nice. Um, and they eventually moved to a very nice house in the South Downs, which uh, for the people who are listening who don't know South Downs it's a it's a thin wedge of rolling chalk hills in the south coast or or just above the south coast of England and um, maybe you can guess it's one of my favorite places in the world yeah very classic England very classic England Um, so Keynes is having a nice time but the economy is in a mess Um, There'd been a huge government investment uh, during the First World War that disappeared when the war ended and growth had become terribly sluggish. Uh, In 1926, there was a general strike. Professionally, Keynes at this time, he's like, um, he's in his late 30s, early 40s. He's become a somewhat unorthodox economic commentator. He's kind of sitting on the sidelines, forced into it, saying the government's getting it wrong. He was pointing out that that wages weren't falling in line with prices, which is what they were supposed to do in a free market, according to the neoclassical economic ideas that, that dominated at the time. And so Keynes argued that government should, uh, should intervene uh, to create jobs, and it should do that by very roughly going back to what it had done during the First World War, that is, spending money on infrastructure projects. So how, how was he expressing that? Is, was, uh, was he still a civil servant this time? Was, was he writing books or was this like a combination of? So this is writing newspaper articles, writing books, giving lectures. Um, he's sort of doing, I guess you'd say, the work of a public intellectual. Yeah, so he's like a public figure at this time. You could read him in a newspaper or something. Yes, um, but in no sense terribly famous. So that idea that was reflecting what had happened in the First World War, spending money on infrastructure projects, that idea is what he's going to become famous for. But at this point, it's just it's one topic of many that he's talking about, not what he's especially known for, and not a particularly prominent idea within the discourse, or at least certainly not in any way dominant. So we get to the 1920s, the late 20s, the stock market crashes, the Great Depression began, unemployment rocketed, remained astonishingly high for a long time, and deflation continued. 
that's, so that's downward pressure on prices. Unsurprisingly, during this period, several governments rose and fell, and um, that included the first Labour government. All of those governments, including the Labour one, pursued policies of austerity. Um, and that was for a number of reasons. There was enormous pressure on the government, on successive governments from their creditors to balance the books. And, and that was partly because of what is called the Treasury view, um, which was very much the economic orthodoxy at the time, which was if you increase government spending, it just crowds out the same amount of private spending or investment. Uh, and so it has a zero net impact on economic activity. So governments should cut, cut, cut. And another reason why this, this view didn't get properly challenged is because Labour um, never won a majority uh, during this period. So, you know, they might have wanted to challenge it, um, for instance, creating a larger welfare state, but their, their historical defenders would say they had no political space to resist this um, neoclassical hegemony. Okay, so this neoclassical view is... Um for the lay person, i.e. me, someone who doesn't have a great knowledge of economics, is that if you if you um, remove the government's spending, private spending, which is depressed, will increase to fill that gap? Absolutely, yes. So neoclassical ideas and free market ideas are not exactly the same but mm -hmm. there's an enormous amount of overlap um so for a, for the purposes of a lot of what we're talking about here neoclassical and free market are almost interchangeable um so say say you're saying economic historians would hate me for that yeah so so say um if if you the the, the orthodoxy at the time was if the government builds this train line say which is going to create economic activity jobs investment etc if the government does it, that's just will just crowd out. That's just a reason that the private sector won't do it, and therefore it's actually bad for the economy to invest because it means the private sector is just going to um, not really get off its feet. Yep, and you know, I suppose in a sense they had quotes evidence for this because lots of things like railways had been built by private uh, entrepreneurs. Uh, they also had lots of evidence that it was wrong because they were in the middle of an incredibly stagnant period, uh, which had begun as soon as the government stopped investing. And the price, and so, and also because wages weren't falling at the same rate as pri as uh, prices. prices. Yes, indeed, um, which was what the neoclassicists said was supposed to be happening um and uh, i think there was even a certain amount of debate about whether that was happening or not I and mean, you've got to remember that at this point uh the capacity of economists and business people and the government to measure activity in the economy of various sorts was extremely limited that was actually a big bugbear of keynes's um so I think that you know there was even debate about whether or not wages were falling in line with prices, and and what part of what Keynes was doing was arguing not simply for a response to that situation, but also for arguing that it was even happening. 
and and kind of broadly across Europe, you've got, I guess, kind of similar kinds of debates happening, um, except that there had been a slow increase in some other countries in economic interventionism kind of since the turn of the century. But as I say, most capitalist governments trying to balance the books um, at this time definitely did, weren't sort of pushing what we'd call Keynesian ideas, spending to stimulate the economy. Even in the US, um, when Roosevelt gets into government um, and begins implementing the New Deal, he still tried but failed to balance the books. And, and really throughout that period, throughout the 30s, stagnation and unemployment continued in, in most capitalist economies. And this had the socio-political impact that we're very aware of. So that's um, increasing support for the labor movement, for communism, for anarcho-syndicalism, but also for the ultra-conservative movements um, and fascism. And, you know, I think what happens at that point when that polarization takes place as we're very very uh, familiar with centrism then disappears so the 1931 general election marked really kind of the end of the liberals as a party of government in the uk labor had taken that place um and keynes wasn't very active in the liberal party after that instead he focused on his his academic economic work um and I want to talk about that in a bit more detail now. So um, here comes the science bit. Uh, I'm going to talk you through two big game-changing arguments from Keynes at this time. Uh, and here I'm, I'm not going to give you simply what Keynes said. I'm articulating it at times more as it would be argued today. And as is so often with the case with these things, you know, these weren't totally new ideas, not from him and not in economics more broadly, but he popularized them. His version of them is the most celebrated and it's his, his expression of these ideas that others then argue with. So idea number one, uh, which he'd been putting forward since uh, the crash of the late 20s. It's about a scenario in which um, a downturn, an economic downturn is beginning. There's unemployment, there's deflationary pressure, pr pressure uh, on prices to go down. Um, and that's because prices, um, prices are being pushed down because producers have spare capacity. So they've got machines which are just sitting there not doing anything, or maybe they've got workers who are sitting there not doing anything um, because they don't have customers coming to them wanting stuff. And what Keynes says is that situation is caused by demand being low across the economy um, and also that that situation can continue indefinitely. So it's two points. It's about demand being low and it's the danger that it can just continue, continue for a long time. And here he's arguing with those classical and neoclassical economists that we mentioned earlier. Um, you know, they assumed that people were utility maximizers, right? You know, um, just want to... Like rational actors. Rational, ac rational actors who want to make the maximum amount of money. Um, and in this scenario that, that Keynes is talking about, the neoclassicists said, unemployed workers, um, you know, when they're offered 
wages lower than what they had before, they will accept those wages and so employment will go back up. So these neoclassicists are saying supply, this is like supply of labor in this case, that's the key thing. Um, and once it's rectified, it's going to produce demand uh, because those newly employed workers will buy shit. Uh, whereas Keynes says, uh, no, 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 it, the problem starts with too little demand, um, and that's what you need to fix. Um, you know, so like the demand of customers for products, um, and the neoclassicists say free markets are going to create balance, and Keynes says, no, 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 low growth and unemployment can continue indefinitely. Ah, I see. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So, so, um, so where they, sorry, basically just repeating what you're saying here, but where they're saying, like, if you lower the wages, eventually the the, the workers will be hungry enough to go back to work for that right. those, those lower wages because they need the work, and then if they, uh, with the money that they make from on those lower wages, they'll spend it. That'll stimulate demand. Then there'll be higher wages because there'll be more work. Well, and even if wages don't go up, the the point is that people will be buying stuff, and that means the economy will um, come out of its slump. And so the downturn and the deflation don't have to be indefinite. And Keynes's big innovation is to say, um, because workers may not accept these lower wages, that is a key part of why actually the slump may just continue. And I think Keynes is kind of like, uh, have you seen the newspapers? Because unemployment at this point had been very high since the First World War ended. The, the free market hadn't sorted it. Um, you know, his assumption was that humans were, were more complex than utility maximizers. Um, and yeah, as I say, this point that that workers um wouldn't accept lower pay than they were used to even if they were unemployed um you know firstly unions um were not going to allow that and we've got to remember that unions are if you like a bit of a historical innovation at this point but they have existed in some form for quite a while and loads of individual workers wouldn't accept that either so prices he was saying are sticky and that includes the price of labor um and he also another element of why you get this um, continued uh, downturn in deflation is that he observes it's actually very easy for money to remain idle. You know, people who could be investing or institutions that could be investing, they actually quite like keeping their money saved as cash a lot of the time, um, especially if, if economic circumstances are uncertain, especially if prices are changing. Um, and that means there's less cash available um, for investing, less demand, um, and that just makes this indefinite slump worse. Mm -hmm. um, so that's first. Uh, that's the first big idea um, that uh, deflation and the downturn can continue because prices are sticky. Uh, then he says something else, and this is his second big idea. Um, and again, other people are saying this, but he's the one most famous one. Uh, Keynes says that unemployment doesn't have to continue indefinitely. The government can spend its way out of it. In fact, governments can avert the crisis in the first place. Um, and that spending that they do in order to achieve that 
uh, Kane says it creates multiple new waves of spending one after another and he calls that the multiplier effect so that's quite a lot I'm going to take you through mm -hmm. it bit by bit um, what we're envisaging here is that private investors have got spooked by deflation or job losses so they aren't investing enough capital um, for, to get business going and probably consumers have started to save rather than spend for very similar reasons um, and in that case Keynes is talking about government stepping in in that kind of scenario and what he says is if the government spends money especially if it builds big infrastructure projects that creates demand as in you're literally going up to a, a company or an individual and saying here's some money i am demanding work to be done by you in order to produce an asset um, so it's creating increasing economic activity that means growth and it, so it's using up the spare capacity in the economy the people who don't have jobs or who are sitting idle um, and the the machines that aren't being used and that's um, that's increased employment on the one hand and it's also pressing back against the deflationary pressure that you get when uh, machines and people um, aren't being used for work can I jump in here and ask a question then yeah please um, eat out to help out. <laughs> now, this is Richie, uh, for, for, for those um, uh, who aren't sort of following UK politics at the moment, this is this um, programme introduced by the British Chancellor, uh, Rishi Sunak, to um, get people to, uh, after the sort of corona lockdown, to go back to restaurants and to um, uh, spend money that they probably, you know, knowing that it's a difficult economic situation at the moment, they they might not go out for dinner as much as they used to so he's offering what is it like he'll pay 10 pounds for every 10 pounds you pay per person yeah that's it in order to like encourage people to go back and so that's coming straight from the, the treasury right that, that he's he's mm -hmm. he's putting money into the pockets like he's subsidizing people to eat out in yeah. order presumably so that the restaurants stay open the waiters still have their jobs they start to you know buy their things at the supermarket or mm -hmm. whatever so is that an example of this sort of stimulus it is, but I, I mean, I must admit, I haven't uh, kind of looked into the Treasury's thinking on this. I imagine that it's partly trying to achieve this kind of stimulating effect. It certainly is a fiscal stimulus in the sense that it is a stimulus to the economy that the government is paying for. The only thing that I think is a little bit different here is that I imagine Rishi Shunak is aware that it's not in a particularly efficient fiscal stimulus like if you were just trying to increase growth then it's probably not what you'd do um i'm gonna explain in a moment about how kind of money can kind of get lost in this in this multiplier effect process um, i think i imagine my guess would be that quite a lot of money gets lost in the process of um stimulating the restaurant trade in this way the thing is that he's not just trying to achieve growth he is literally just trying to keep these businesses up and running open um, yeah. exactly and it's also i imagine attempt try, attempting a behavior change impact on people so like i didn't really go to cafes and restaurants for several months during the pandemic 
but then Eat Out to Help Out did actually encourage me to, to go do that. Um, and then what it does is it affects behavior change. So even if Eat Out to Help Out ends, which it probably will, I'm, I've now got into a place where I emotionally can put myself into a cafe and I'm not feeling too uncomfortable about it. Okay. So um, this is also a mixture of, so it's a mixture of Sunak and also sort of this Dominic Cummings nudge bullshit. I imagine it's got a certain nudge element, but to be honest, this is something that people were doing long before the nudge unit or whatever. Um, But yes, what this, what that is a really good example of that you've brought there is how a fiscal stimulus can, you know, will always have some kind of multiplier effect because those, uh, you know, the waiters and uh, chefs uh, and porters or whatever uh, at restaurants and cafes will um, have money in their pocket that they might not otherwise have had and they will um, probably go spend it. But uh, it's also worth bearing in mind that, you know, Lots of them um, will be migrant workers and will, um, you know, definitely have uh, family back home um, uh, in in many cases who uh, they're used to sending money to. And that's always been a big part of why they um, come to a a rich country like the UK and do really shitty jobs. Um, And uh, so, so that money, if you like, gets, quotes, lost because it goes into another economy. Okay. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Back, no, to, no. back to Keynes. Yeah. Well. Uh, well. That you know what you've just described there is like a, a fantastic e- example of 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 what Keynes is talking about. So let's talk about this this multiplier effect. Um, you know, uh, say the government uh, the government wants to spend money by buying a by building a bridge, building a bridge. Um, and what I'm going to show you is how that spending creates demand, which creates economic activity, which means that people have more money in their pockets. They spend that. That creates more demand, which creates more act- economic activity. And what you can hear there is that's like a never-ending cycle, or it sounds a bit like it. So it ripples out from that initial bit of investment, ripples out many times until it eventually dissipates. And each ripple is creating a lot of income for many people probably not equally distributed but there is quite a lot of it so this bridge um as it's bad gaze let's say the government is building a new voxel bridge which it sort of is um all the people who are working to build the new voxel bridge they get paid um so let's say like first year's pay slips um add up to 20 million pounds the workers who've done, they, firstly, workers have done £20 million worth of work. Um, they put, they're going to have to put some of that £20 million into savings. Some of it's going to go to the taxman and some of it's going to be spent internationally, like I was mentioning. Um, and those are kind of three... These are these. I, th- I talked about those three black holes. You know, those are three black holes of spending which don't further contribute to the economy but you know 30 percent say of that 20 million goes into those three black holes of savings tax and international 70 percent 
goes into is still there in their pockets for them to spend so you know maybe the builders they've got 14 million pounds 70 percent of 20 million 14 million pounds in their pockets they spend it on their rent they spend it on their lunches in the portuguese cafes in stockwell they spend it on club entry and beer at the royal Vauxhall tavern after work so already we've only had kind of two ripples from the uh, government investment we've had the uh, ripple of 20 million at first and then we've had a 14 million pound ripple that's 34 million in total so you've already increased your initial outlay significantly and if if the same amount continues to get put into those three black holes 30% goes into them and 70% gets spent well you're gonna have you know 9.8 million in your next ripple um six ah. in your next and it so 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 the person who works in the portuguese cafe and the person who uh works behind a bar at the rvt does the state they do the same things and then so you just get this like it, it keeps being spent the same money keeps being spent over and over by different people Exactly. And every time it's spent, it creates demand and it therefore initiates economic activity. Work gets done, more income gets made. And each time, some of that money gets lost to those black holes. And eventually you get to just 1p and it doesn't have any impact next time. But let's say, for, for the sake of argument, that it's always 30% that gets lost to those three black holes of savings, international and tax. Well, eventually that 20 million would add up to 66 million um, um, pounds worth of, of initial inv of investment having gone into the economy. And that is what we call Keynes's fiscal multiplier. Um, and its basic principle is initial spending causes demand, causes productive activity, creates more spending, creates more demand, creates more productive activity, not infinite, not egalitarian, but a very good way of stimulating the economy. That seems like quite, to me as a layperson, surely an incredibly important economic law or theory to have grasped. Profoundly, profoundly important. Um, and like I say, not just Keynes's work um, and something which has been... I mean, perhaps more contested in it in the details of how it operates and why it operates and who it benefits, perhaps more contested than any other concept in the history of economics. Um, mm. uh, and what's interesting, though, is that in the last few decades, as our capacity to, I mean, basically measure economic data has enormously increased, some of those debates have actually been settled, and I'm going to get onto that soon. Um, a key political point that lot is to make is that a lot of that spending wouldn't otherwise have happened so we were talking about this treasury view earlier about kind of um, government money crowds out private money um when keynes proposed this fiscal uh multiplier it was of course challenged very much by that and was challenging it um but that phenomenon of government spending crowding out private it kind of does seem to have been um actually kind of not too much of a problem that's what a lot of data um in the last few decades has indicated instead what we've seen especially in the last four decades is that government spending injects money and demand into the real economy 
of production, um, whereas private investment by banks um, skews towards the places where the biggest and fastest returns are to be had, uh, and that's been financial and property markets. However, it, it, is, it has to be acknowledged that different spending can have very different multiplier effects. So, for instance, um, construction projects generally do well. Um, they, uh, military spending, I'm sorry to say, has a very high multiplier effect. Uh, by contrast, stimulating the economy by cutting taxes on the rich that will have a multiplier effect, um, but it's usually a relatively small one uh, because rich people have the most excess cash. Um, so if their taxes go down, they will have cash at their disposal, more cash, and they'll just put more of it in their pension than someone on a low income would um, because that person on a low income with their income was freed up. They'd probably want to spend it. Also, rich people are tight bastards. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, that is an economic law. Um, this has been, like, as I said, such a contentious subject in macroeconomics. Um, as I said, it's also now a bit more accepted. In fact, even the International Monetary Fund, which has um, been very much on the right of economic opinion for several decades, it did come to admit that the, that the fiscal multiplier effect can be very high. What it says is um, it's especially high when there's spare capacity in the economy. Uh, so that, again, that's when like, you've got people not working, when you've got machines not being used. Um, also, it's uh, particularly effective when interest rates are low, and it's particularly effective when you've got lots of countries stimulating their economies simultaneously. And maybe just like a few kind of like qualifying points now to make about the fiscal stimulus and the multiplier effect, or actually the stimulus in particular. Firstly, as I've kind of indicated already, this isn't socialism. We really, really shouldn't get these things confused. The money of a, a fiscal stimulus can be spent on private companies taking government contracts. Um, that will create income and employment, just like Keynes is planning for. Um, you know, there's, there's absolutely no necessary connection to public ownership, um, has very little to do with the welfare state, doesn't have to have a significant redistributive impact, though it could potentially have that if you wanted it to. Um, also, Keynes isn't against that idea of a monetary stimulus, which the IMF um, advocates for. Um, that and monetary stimulus probably means um, interest rates being cut um, because that then promotes private lending and therefore growth. Keynes's big idea about that is he thinks it's very hard to make it work because the people who set interest rates can't know exactly what effect their rates are going to have on demand um, another kind of big a, a big important point to remember about all of this is that um, Keynes would say this this government spending we're talking about it absolutely should not be funded by increasing taxes because that reduces demand people have got less money in their pockets so they're not going to be spending it on stuff instead the government probably needs to spend by borrowing uh, and this is obviously going to be another really big contentious part of all of this. Um, but kind of the important thing is that net spending, i.e. the difference between spending and taxes, that has to increase. 
which could mean that you actually just um, cut taxes. But A, that's been shown to not be particularly effective as uh, in terms of the multiplier effect it has. And also it just hasn't been used all that often um, and it just isn't associated with Keynes. So I'm not going to talk about it all that much. And as a final kind of coda to all of these ideas, and there's been a lot of them, but one kind of final thing I think that's important to add is um, you know, you've got these big influential ideas of the indefinite deflationary pressure and the unemployment, the fiscal stimulus, the, um, the fiscal multiplier. But um, Keynes's big cheerleaders, they would say there's so much more to him than that. And it's true. He, he did have a kind of more philosophical uh, point of view, as a lot of the great economists do. He was very big on uncertainty. We can't know how much demand there will be. And because of that uncertainty, private investment depends on irrational confidence, what he called animal spirits. And that's, uh, you know, uh, that uncertainty and that uh, the fact that the uncertainty kind of seems to pertain especially to private activity um, is part of why you need a fiscal stimulus by the government. So. Uh, I'm going to pause on the theory for a bit and talk about the real world. Um, okay, so it's 1937. It's a year after he published his most famous book, His General Theory. Um, Keynes has been putting forward these ideas for years, but uh, very quickly, once he published that book, he gets a lot of recognition. It's terribly controversial around the world. Um, a lot of people in policy and in the academy are talking about this Keynes guy. Um, and in Britain particularly, there's immediately a chunk of people who are receptive to it. And then Keynes has an angina. Um, he'd been a very heavy smoker for a long time. He's now totally out for the count. Um, he pretty much stopped contributing to theory, uh, but his ideas were, were so powerful um, that they produced, that provoked this huge debate, um, attracting more and more supporters. And then by the end of the 1930s, in, the, in Britain and the US, his ideas were, you know, pretty much well they were very widely accepted by the by the end of the 30s so it'd only taken a few years and that is like I mean, it's kind of astonishing but it also kind of makes sense because the neoclassical orthodoxy which we've been talking about earlier this treasury view it's so obviously failed to cope with the crash of 29 or the great depression Around the world, policymakers were looking at the statist economies of communism and fascism, which were obviously terrible for many of the people who lived under them, um, most of the people who lived under them. Um, but uh, from the cynical point of view of political leaders, those regimes looked successful. Um, and then, of course, the Second World War began. The war economy was very much a state-controlled one. So that is, if you like, world events necessarily moving economics into a more, quotes, Keynesian mold. Uh, Keynes also recovered from this, from this angina um, just as Britain entered the war. Uh, he became much more focused on policy. He was made a director of the Bank of England. Um, he was also made a hereditary member of the House of Lords, um, because that's the wild kind of political system we have in the UK still. 
during the war, he went back and forth across the Atlantic uh, for meetings with the US government. And Lydia came with him um, and did a lot of shopping in Washington. <laughs> because, yeah, exactly. Because, of course, rationing wasn't really a thing there. Um, apparently, on one trip, she bought 18 pairs of shoes, 40 pairs of stockings, and a large trunk full of food. Um, because like, Melda Marcos. Yeah. <laughs> Melda Marcos, but with an incredible talent for um, uh, avant-garde ballet. I, I mean, like, I think we could be quite sympathetic to that. Uh, you know, certainly wasn't hurting anyone back in, in Britain. Um, but, you know, she was also someone who didn't care about what other people thought um, in her 70s. Uh, so this is like many years later. Um, she'd been a decade or two a widow. Um, there was a, there's a public footpath which bordered her garden in the South Downs. Uh, and the hikers who went past would uh, get something of a surprise when they looked over into her garden and saw this septuagenarian former ballerina sunbathing naked. Um, I like her. Anyway, after the war, Keynes was closely involved in the construction of what became known as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And, you know, Partly, he didn't have actually an enormous amount of say over what they ultimately were like, but also these institutions weren't quite as like weren't quite as evil as they became <laughs> um, at this point. Um, but in any case, he and the UK had very little influence over their design. The US made the big decisions. Uh, for instance, like Kane, what Keynes was keen for a system that would prevent trade imbalances. He thought that was a good way to ensure peace, and you know, perhaps he had a point. Uh, certainly, current um, you know Cold War between Russia and the sorry between China and the US um, would suggest that trade imbalances um, are quite an important thing to try to prevent. Mm -hmm. In any case. Um, I mean, there's a big argument over that because, you know, a trade imbalance between, uh, uh, between US and China is also improving um, incomes and, and, and life chances in China. In any case, the US was absolutely not going to try to prevent trade imbalances uh, in the mid-40s um, because um, it was a great exporter. So it had absolutely no interest in that happening. What Keynes did get um, in these, um, th this, is, this is very broadly called the Bretton Woods um, uh, agreement and, and, and discussion, though it kind of went on over a much longer period. Um, what he did get, because the Americans wanted it, um, uh, was capital controls. So that's controls on money going in and out of countries. Um, and, and the gold standard, which uh, involved pegging other currencies to the dollar um, and the combination of these things made a global economy in which financial speculation was much much harder uh, another completely different contribution that he made after the war was to the arts in britain so in the 30s, he'd founded a theatre in Cambridge and continued to bankroll it. Uh, during the war, he got the government to fund the Royal Opera at Covent Garden and also Nanette de Valois' ballet company at Santor as Wells. So, you know, this is a reminder that Case had, Keynes had pretty good taste. He owned a decent collection of artworks by the most important modernists. Opera queen. 
absolutely. Um, and the ballet, you know, ballet had gone from being kind of pretty much invisible in Britain um, at the beginning of the 20th century um, to in the 30s actually kind of being a bit of a fad. So him demanding government funds for it wasn't like quite as outrageous as it might sound, but um, maybe does tell you something about his priorities. After the war, he was key to the creation of the Arts Council, which is the big um, like government funding body for the arts uh, now, now just in England, is that right? But it used to be the whole of the UK. Uh, yeah, Arts Council England now, yeah. yeah. Different ones um, exactly. Um, so um, the Arts Council gave a big chunk of its cash to the Royal Opera House and Valois uh, Ballet Company, which then moved into Covent Garden and a decade later became the Royal Ballet. So, you know, these are some of the biggest cultural institutions in the UK and, and Keynes was vital to their, their creation and survival. Uh, of course, uh, other things were being nationalised at this time, not just ballet, um, because this is when uh, the Labour government under Clement Attlee um, started forming the NHS, National Health Service. And I think um, it's important actually to talk about Keynes's relationship to public ownership on the one hand and, and to the welfare state on the other. As I've said, Keynes's economic theory, it's about socialising investment, the government doing investment, thereby controlling demand and that hopefully um, creating a situation where you can kind of let the market do the rest. Public ownership doesn't really have any necessary place in that. Um, so the way that kind of after the war, governments across Europe kept manufacturing and energy production and big industrial production, the way they kept those nationalized because they'd nationalized them for the war in some cases, the way they kept them nationalized, um, that kind of thing has been associated with Keynesianism because at the same time, they were also starting to be very interested in his economic ideas, but it's in no way part of his theory. Ah, you see, I think that's something I hadn't really grasped is that I, I didn't really know that relationship, but, but basically he's saying those, those can be private industries. Um, Absolutely. And then in times of crisis, um, a, a sort of stimulus or filling that demand um, will, will prevent, you know, recession. Yeah. But, but not that there's any sort of, um, as socialists would argue that there's both like a moral and economic imperative for those uh, productive forces to be in the hands of the state or, or workers. Workers or workers, indeed. Um, or, or even communities, um, including the workers. Um, yeah, that is absolutely not what Keynes is saying. Um, the only exception for Keynes um, would be, for instance, a nationalised health service, um, perhaps Actually, I must admit, I don't know. I think he was in in uh, in favour of public ownership of, of of some education, at least. Definitely, nationalised health service um, as part of a moderately sized welfare state, because that welfare state is ensuring that people with little or no wealth carry on consuming. You know, that keeps investment up, that keeps employment up. Um, so, you know, that would be what you know what a very limited social democracy and it's justified on the grounds that it makes capitalism more efficient yeah like dead people don't buy trainers right right and so it makes sense that Keynes was involved in the construction of the welfare state uh which happens just after the end of the war you know i talked about how the initial 
moments of the the, kind of the nascent welfare state was created um, by that liberal government um, uh, very early on in the 20th century. Uh, but um, it was William Beveridge's 1942 report. William Beveridge is another liberal party. Uh, oh God, was he a peer as well? Anyway, he was a liberal. Um, he wrote a 1942 report which had advocated for the construction of a bigger welfare state, it had been very influential. Keynes very much supported that. And that's pretty much the end for him. You know, in 1946, he had a series of heart attacks. Um, and in between these, he went to the States to negotiate the terms of a, a huge uh, US loan to the UK to keep it going after the war. He had a horrible time in the States, but he secured very good terms. Um, it was one last triumph. He came back home to Sussex, to the wonderful South Downs. With Lydia, he had uh, another heart attack, and on the 21st of April 1946, he died aged 62. And I think at this point, you might often have a little bit of a break, but really, the biography of Keynes continues, um, at least, you know, in terms of kind of hit the rise of him and his influence. I think, you know, we definitely need to talk a, a bit about Yeah, I was going to say, because... Because he published that his big book then, what, less than 10 years before he died, and he was his the implementation of his ideas, as it were, was interrupted by most of that time the, uh, the UK and America being at war. Indeed, indeed. Um, I think almost exactly 10 years after he died, the, the, um, uh, before he died. Uh, anyway, indeed, indeed. So after Keynes died his ideas did continue to become m m more more important and, and more influential but when we say his ideas um we actually mean economists influenced by his ideas um and um and by the mid 50s those ideas were, were directing the economies of most capitalist states um so we can call it a Keynesian revolution. Um, that is, it's, you know, kind of like official title, but it is Keynesianism in a boulderized form. Um, one thing which is very much not acknowledged by these, um, these neo-Keynesians who very much try to kind of mix his work with neoclassicism is that they, I mean, they don't acknowledge uncertainty in the way that he does. Um, you know, they, they kind of thought that they could impart economic laws in a way that Keynes didn't believe was possible. And so a lot of kind of Keynes cheerleaders would say if he'd lived, he might have been able to put them right. Who knows? Who knows? Um, maybe the most important thing about the Keynesian, Keynesian revolution is what it wasn't, which is, like I've been saying, it wasn't social democracy social democracy was emerging at the same time and they they do fit neatly together so you know lots of infrastructure spending sits happily alongside a sizable welfare state uh, and publicly owned industries because for that social democracy you need a treasury that isn't terrified of public debt uh, and you need infrastructure for schools hospitals state-owned transport and energy and this is, I think, um, it's the justification or at least the explanation for why there's a certain amount of standing Keynes for some people on the centre left. But like Keynesianism and social democracy just are not the same. 
um, there are lots of parts of the welfare state that, that don't stimulate the economy effectively. They don't have a high multiplier effect. Uh, obviously, their value is a social one or even political. Um, and similarly, a fiscal stimulus doesn't have to radically benefit working class people. Like policies that might promote employment, you know, they may have some positive impact on income inequality, but that doesn't have to be huge. So there's a potential overlap between Keynesianism and social democracy, but a Keynesian capitalist economy could remain highly unequal. Whereas if a social democracy isn't moving towards greater equality, then it's just not social democracy. So there is this Keynesian revolution, but we have to be really clear, it's not the same as the social democratic one that's happening at the same time. And both, you know, kind of seemed very successful, actually. Um, the 50s and the 60s, you know, understandably, they're described as the golden age of capitalism, pretty much constant growth, very low unemployment, um, and, and indeed kind of a, a commitment to, um, to zero unemployment was, if you like, uh, sometimes an explicit, sometimes an implicit political goal. And then in the 60s, it all just gets quite unstuck. And, you know, the problem that Keynes had been addressing and that the neo-Keynesians knew how to address was low growth, unemployment, deflation, prices going down. But now um, they, were, they were confronted by something very different. Um, growth, sorry, low growth, unemployment and inflation prices going up and you know they had like they had this graph it was called the phillips curve it showed how the inflation rate went up as unemployment went down and vice versa and that graph was just being completely contradicted by reality and i think it's a bit of a reminder that economists often get so focused on their models um, that they just completely ignore the reality around them uh, because lots of the world's capitalist economies began to suffer in the 60s from this low growth unemployment inflation problem lots of lots of arguments about why that happened um people on the right said and say and they have a point um that at least a big part of what was happening was that neo-keynesian governments they were injecting a fiscal stimulus at the wrong time um you're supposed to do it when there's signs of deflation, um, but they would uh, often do it uh, like a bit before a general election. So you seem to be succeeding, the economy's going well, people vote for you. Um, but that means um, demand's going to grow faster than capacity, prices will get bidded up, you get inflation. Hmm. Um, and when that was happening with this inflation, you know, governments tried to control prices. Um, often that was by negotiating corporatist deals with bosses and trade unions. That did stop wages going up very incredibly fast. Most of the time um, had some impact on inflation, but, but those deals generally broke down politically. Um, and at the same time, you've got another bit of the Keynesian legacy breaking down. Um, foreign governments had been able to exchange their dollars for gold at a fixed rate. That was the gold standard that I mentioned earlier. President Nixon abolished it. Um, and what that did is it meant currencies no longer had fixed relationships to each other. So financial for speculation, much easier. 
and and like kind of augmenting that um, was that a bit later you had a massive weakening of capital controls, controls on money leaving countries and going into other jurisdictions that had the same effect in terms of encouraging financial speculation or at least enabling it. Um, and then in 1973, there's the oil crisis, which people might have heard of. Um, in short, the price of oil enormously rocketed. That creates massive inflationary pressure. Um, that triggered a global recession. Um, and that was characterized by like an extreme version of what had happened before. Low growth, unemployment, inflation. And in fact, it was so, so stubborn, um, stagnation and inflation, that they called it stagflation. And, you know, in this situation, the Keynesian strategy of targeting unemployment with a fiscal stimulus, um, you know, that already seems to be creating too much inflation. So there's more now of that. Um, and neo-Keynesians just don't have an answer. Plus, the international system that had made financial speculation difficult has been torn down. So that now is the context for the world that we entered into and are still really living in. Um, it's the context for a totally new macroeconomic consensus amongst capitalist economies. It's a return to those neoclassical ideas that uh, Keynes had tried to defeat and failed. Um, it's an update on them. Um, and over the next half century, you know, that emerges and becomes dominant. We call it neoliberalism. We could say it's a bit more specific than that. Um, I thought neoliberalism didn't exist. I thought it's just a, a made-up slur by the left. Oh, I, I love made-up slurs. I mean, I think I've probably said quite a lot of them today. Uh, w one really big thing that we often don't talk about in terms of the neoliber new neoliberal consensus, something that is very much a reaction against Keynes, is... Um, a focus on keeping inflation at a at a low and stable rate. Um, we call it inflation targeting, and and a new assumption that this is going to be the best thing for employment and growth in the long term. Just focusing on keeping uh, inflation at that low and stable rate, um, and that means you've got to allow unemployment and wages to be at whatever level they go to, and that means you have to destroy the power of the trade unions. Ah, so that's going, that's going right back to that sort of theory then in the sort of 20s and 30s that, um, that as rational economic actors, um, workers will find the, the, the right wage level according to the economy. Absolutely, absolutely. As long as they have no ability to actually organise amongst themselves. Right, you have to literally destroy their social and communal networks in order to... Um, well, you have to, in order to deal with that price of uh, that that problem of price stickiness that uh, that Keynes mm -hmm. was talking about so many decades before, um, and uh, another thing that all of this means is you, you central, but you make central banks, uh, which which are the people who control interest rates, um, you make them independent, and you give them one job. Um, which is keep inflation at this particular rate. Uh, generally, it's 2%. It also means new rules for finance ministries, um, basically keep budgets balanced, at least over the economic cycle. 
Uh, and it means the deregulation of financial industries, which allows for a lot of growth, but it's highly leveraged growth. It's focused on some sectors rather than others, and the benefits of it are very unequally distributed. When you say that it, it, it necessitates new rules for financial ministries, mm-hmm. that means austerity? Uh, so, has, yes, in short, um, it, it like, but what kind of austerity that means is, I guess, kind of enormously politically flexible. Um, okay. But yes, broadly, that's what it means. Um, and all of that has contributed to, uh, you know, produce a global economy that is extremely inequitable and extremely privately leveraged. Yeah, this shit show, basically, at the moment. Yeah, exactly. And also, you know, from a more global perspective, um, you know, this ideology quickly penetrated the Bretton Woods institutions, the IMF and the World Bank, and they started, when economies got into trouble, um, imposing austerity on them. So they, they yeah. So so when they they need the money for the fiscal stimulus, they the IMF and the World Bank say so you can have it, but you've got to destroy the trade unions in your country, and you've got to remove healthcare um, or et cetera, et cetera. It's sort of stuff that they've done in Greece and Spain and Italy, but also massively, obviously, in South America. Yes, and and also in many sub-Saharan African countries as well, and uh, you know. It, the only the only thing I would change in what you said is that it's not even for a fi- fiscal stimulus. It's in order to keep running. It's it's very much saying you're not allowed a fiscal stimulus. Um, uh-huh. And I mean, obviously, this has like terrible, terrible impacts uh, on on the global working class and indeed many middle class um, communities. Um, it's an appalling affront to anything that we might call democracy. And uh, we see like very, very long term impacts of that in countries that had this imposed on them. And not that kind of this is what matters most about it, but it is appallingly sad that this happened for decades. It happened to the poorest countries. And it's now basically been acknowledged to have been a complete failure, a terrible, um, a terrible failure if the aim of it was to promote growth and get those countries back on their feet and keep people people alive and indeed make the global economy successful but of course if what if 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 the uh, intention was to privatize economies deregulate them turn them into uh better opportunities for rent seeking and profit extraction then it was very fucking successful as you say, this is broadly the position that we are still in, except that in the last decade, that consensus has become weaker. Uh, and that's because during the Great Recession that followed the 2007-8 financial crisis, there was a huge debate about whether a fiscal stimulus or austerity would be better for getting growth back. And the different policy responses of different countries created a kind of i mean like kind of a huge economic experiment to test this debate that had been going on for decades um and basically you know there's there is no debate now or very very little of it um you know firstly countries with severe austerity programs 
this is after the the the, the crisis and, and and during the last recession countries with severe austerity programs so that's like the uk but also very much um you know obviously greece portugal um they underperformed very significantly compared to those with looser fiscal policies for instance the us um now you might say oh maybe those economies were already performing badly that's why they did badly then so you've kind of like skewed your results um but the imf um actually did some kind of very groundbreaking research which showed that those countries with austerity policies generally had done worse than imf economists had predicted while those countries that cut less had generally exceeded expectations which suggests that it is genuinely the austerity programs which are uh which had messed up um long-term or medium-term prospects for growth and so, as I say, you know, if we think of austerity as a way of enabling growth and not purely a political project for cutting the state, then it failed miserably. Um, and this is very much the kind of thing that Keynes was trying to save capitalism from. You know, saving capitalism from itself meant saving it from George Osborne. It meant um, saving it from Angela Merkel and the Troika in what they did to, into Greece. And the result is of, of this kind of very significant ideological shift is that now that we're in a new recession, or at least economic theoretical shift, now we're in a new recession, we see, say, Trump's attacks on central bank independence, we see his disregard for balanced budgets, the US has a $2 trillion stimulus package, and Germany, which for a long time has had a commitment to a balanced budget, very long-standing, um, you know, they've, they've ended that commitment. So you've got two conservative governments, differently conservative, uh, which saw how austerity failed so terribly a decade ago, and now, to very varying degrees, they're rejecting austerity. So really what we're seeing here is a return of Keynes's ideas uh, not merely to a kind of position of um, power within the academy, but also to a position of enormous influence within policymaking at the very highest level, um, both on uh, different national levels um, and also on the international level. Another factor in how the old consensus has become weaker and weaker uh, is that central banks' options have actually started to run out and, and, and then kind of new tools have had to be found. Um, I'll explain that by rewinding a little bit. Uh, a bit over a decade ago, Great Recession began. Interest rates had gone down very significantly to historically incredibly low levels in order to encourage private investment hypothetically there would have been really kind of great growth years after that and that would have been the time when you'd push up interest rates again but growth was always so fragile um, and at least in the uk inflationary pressure was so low uh, that um, interest rates never went up again really um, and that means that now we've got another recession beginning there's no fucking interest rates to cut unless we want to go into negative rates so the only monetary policy option that's available as we enter into this new recession is more quantitative easing. Um, and that 
when it started was an astonishingly radical policy and it's now just become totally normal. So it is true that the anti-Keynesian consensus on neoliberalism, inflation targeting, as, a, as you can see, that's been weakened. But the consensus weakening doesn't mean that those ideas aren't still powerful. It just means that they're not totally hegemonic. Um, also, it's really important for us to remember the, the expansionary fiscal policy that's being implemented now, you know, like this huge uh, stimulus package of Trump. Governments, oh, and indeed uh, eat, eat out to help out, governments of all ideological characters are going for that policy option, which, you know, tells us something, right? Um, it marks a shift since the last recession um, when so many governments opted to cut. But the big question is like, you know, how keen will these governments be to balance their budgets eventually? You know, how long will these fiscal stimuluses last? It's going to differ country to country, partly a question of who's in charge. Um, also partly a question of like, what kind of pressure is there from international financial voices? Um, because if those people remain frightened of long-term budget deficits, they can become a very powerful force because if they think their money's not safe somewhere, well then, the rational thing for them is to move it. My view for what it's worth is that this form of capitalism that's existed for the last half century, it has proved itself extremely politically resilient. And even though it is weaker now than it was, I don't think we can assume that it's going to completely disappear soon. Because even though it's shit at creating growth in the real economy, it's very good at creating profits for rent seekers. Well, thanks so much, Ricky, for that really um, rigorous look at his life and his legacy. Um, and a great story, fantastically told. Um, I hadn't realised he was sort of such an interesting man in terms of his personal life and his his private life, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it perhaps like became a bit less exciting after he found uh heterosexual happiness uh but um he definitely had a pretty heady time before that yeah and his group of friends i was thinking about this niall ferguson quote sorry to raise him again obviously he's wrong and um not just because he's Niall ferguson but also because he he misses out the fact that he was bisexual mm -hmm. um and but but to what extent do you think we can draw uh, like wider lessons or like understand his economic policies through his personal life, um, like the shape of his relationships. Um, I guess from what you were saying that it seems he's very much part of this milieu for whom they kind of felt like they were born to rule. Um, yeah, at the same time he was exposed to sort of um, some more interesting and exciting ideas. But it seems that like, unlike a lot of his... Um, sort of cohort who adopted more left socialist ideas, his patrician values for didn't really seem to necessarily even think about um, the wider economic effects beyond quite abstract ideas of growth. Yep, yeah, and also that he, I think, probably didn't think that a fairly significant degree of inequality was a bad thing. He thought that was a, a good way and, and the right way for society to be organized. You know, in terms of his, his relationships and kind of how that reflects or might be linked to his, his economic theories, 
you know, his relationships were almost exclusively with other upper class and upper middle class people, um, mostly with men. I suppose, you know, the it doesn't then particularly surprise me that that, that snobbery, which of course was very normal um, for someone of, of his time, not particularly unusual now, um, that was reflected in his political economy because he was very explicitly, uh, you know, advocating a theory of how to ensure that capitalism survived um, and not even particularly requiring it to become much more redistributive, not requiring it to become much more, more equal. Um, you know, the kind of the social democratic demands that he makes on capitalism for the sake of its survival are, are pretty minimal ones. Um, and, and, and as I say, you know, um, definitely don't require a significant degree of, of public ownership. Uh, and as we've discussed, he was living through this time where not only were the working class organizing and, uh, and, 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 and their ideas were, if you like, on offer, um, but also there were plenty of people who, you know, Keynes could have comfortably had a conversation with at a dinner party who were on the left and who were acting in solidarity with those working class movements and adding their voices and using their institutional power to support those movements. And so there was no, if you like, there was no necessarily social or cultural barrier to Keynes uh, doing that. I think, you know, it's, um, I don't think we can just say, oh, who's a product of his time, except to the extent that, you know, it, it is certainly the case that, as you say, he was friends with all of these innovative people, but lots of them weren't particularly progressive in their their politics, at least in terms of their kind of party politics, even if they were progressive in terms of, say, their sexual politics. Um, you know, that, and, but that makes sense because even more than is the case now, the, the ruling class was divided into if you like a sort of really stubbornly traditionalist um you know aristocratic um element on the one hand and a more socially uh more so more socially progressive more urban um element not that they were um economically more progressive um but just that you know they were sort of for instance slightly more comfortable with women having some sort of place in social activity though not in economic life now. yeah and also like even within those groups and, and within their i guess bisexuality being um like a reasonably accepted behavior within those groups the there was not necessarily equality in the way that people within the bloomsbury set for example treated their um like the way the men treat their uh, women partners when compared to when they're dealing with their male partners as well. Like, certainly, certainly, there's you know we shouldn't um, confuse what was going on, which was um, like significant changes in gender ideology 
which we can very much now see as precursors to more progressive changes on the one hand we shouldn't confuse that with those progressive changes happening then like yeah we're still like deeply misogynistic people in many ways yeah and also like obviously like it, what's quite interesting for us is that they are so legible as as being bisexual a culture which is which um was very accepting of bisexuality and yet that legibility doesn't necessarily um transfer to the way that they dealt with all sorts of different aspects of those relationships maybe that's a long-winded way of saying it but what i mean is that like although they were they were they can be seen as bohemian and bisexual the men who were in relationships with men those relationships weren't the same as um the relationships people have with women and the women who were in those relationships with women had like much less recognition for those relationships as being legible at all and then a lot of them did get married which is very different mm -hmm. you know this sort of like sexual camaraderie that that and then like the lovers are very different to people setting down their partners. And the thing that, yeah. that really struck me when you were talking about his diaries is um, the degree of uh, meaning and significance and agency that was given to, um, let's say, his peers, like his the guys that he was into at university or after mm -hmm. university in, in that set, compared to the way that he described his sex with people of a lower class and people of colour which was extremely like racist and classist and like they became um, just tokens of like a type of sexual activity. Yeah. It's like this. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Indeed. And, you know, I guess this is always the big question about um, like marginal um, in some ways subordinate, like marginal subcultures, do they, um undermine the hegemonic culture or do they um allow it to continue existing and in the same way that you know does keynesianism do, do, does keynesian economics m help capitalism to survive or is it in fact the sort of a key element of the social democracy that will ultimately turn into something that will destroy capitalism or is keynesian economics uh you know actually just like a really good way for capitalism capitalism to survive if only idiots like george osborne would realize it and then yeah. in the same way is the kind of apostles um misogyny combined with homosexual self-hatred is that actually like a thing that will keep patriarchy going or is it a patriarchal subculture which will ultimately come to undermine patriarchy right yeah and while and while the sort of um sex lives of those people especially the bisexual men at the time and and probably homosexual men within that class position would probably be shocking to their parents or and to other people in society at that time their sort of bohemian uh, sexual libertarianism perhaps mm -hmm. they like um like Keynes, like uh, they would go on to be just as efficient uh, administrators of empire as their fathers well not quite as efficient because of course they did lose the empire but they certainly tried well yeah they tried uh, yeah and that, that's not down <laughs> to them that's that's down to, down to the sort of bravery and tenacity of the people who were organizing quite. resistance movements quite i suppose it, yes it's just a reminder that people can be uh, seemingly innovative and forward-thinking in some ways, and yet very, very committed to maintaining their 
positions of authority. And, and what was what his, like? Obviously, you're saying he was a liberal, but what was his relationship to the left while he was alive? Obviously, those positions, his economic policies, would not become sort of inflected with the understanding of them being part of social democracy, which you've quite uh, cleverly or clearly said that doesn't really follow. But at the time, how what was his reading? Presumably, he was as scared of the um, Bolshevik Revolution as a lot of his peers. Absolutely. He was a, absolutely an opponent of class war, and he saw his work as being a way of, of undermining that. Um, there, was, um, there was some election material in 1924 in which he said, so this is, you know, this is really when this is only a few elections after the October Revolution has taken place. Um, By reason of the old-fashioned dogmas and the class interests, they are compelled to serve. Neither socialists nor Tories are likely to do anything sensible and effective in the near future. So it's kind of bullshit centrism. Yeah, sensible Um, centrist, isn't he? Exactly, exactly. it's 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 interesting that like that's that's very new language in the sense that you know that it hadn't been a long time that um anyone would have had any reason to attack both socialists and tories um and wouldn't have had many opportunities to do so and yet that's really very very similar language to what we hear nowadays right yeah exactly and on that note what do you think his legacy going forward will be i mean it feels like a lot of the implementation of his um, of his ideas after his death were also driven by the need to reform in order to prevent revolution uh, in Western Europe, for example. Mm-hmm. The threat of trade, the supposed threat of trade unions and socialists um, taking over the economy in a more revolutionary way, or or, or reorganizing um, the wage system, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, how how do you think, how do you think going forwards his because essentially now like he's his policies would be seen as to be on the on the left no well except that like if rishi sunak's doing it is it on the left like um i don't think any of us uh imagine that the the conservative party in the uk their fellow um you know right and center-right parties um around uh, the world, particularly Europe and North America, you know, I don't think anyone would imagine that those parties like want to create more equal societies because of some ethical need to do so. Given that they've those institutions have worked very hard not to turn that into a criterion of good political action for the last forty years, or rather to stop it being one. So. You know, those people have been part of those institutions, the politicians we're talking about have been part of those institutions. They have not wanted equality. <laughs> they have very much fought against it as a, as I say, as a political principle. So now that we hear them talking about leveling up, for instance, that's the phrase that Boris Johnson uses in, in the UK. Um, we have to assume that there is a different political reason for them doing so. And I think we have to assume that it's because they understand that, uh, that our society and, and 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 many many societies around the world are extremely socio-politically unstable, um, and that this may be a genie that they have let out and won't be able to control. Uh, and really, it's just it's the question of 
how 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 kind of far are they going to allow themselves and how far will they be allowed by their financial backers to continue with the kind of the somewhat egalitarian uh policies um that they're currently implementing and i I cannot kind of stress that somewhat enough because of course we're absolutely still talking about highly deregulated economies highly privatized economies um economies where um the size of the welfare state was enormously shrunk over the last 40 years, particularly in the last several years. And that that shrinkage hasn't been reversed. It's just gen on the whole been paused. Um, you know, and, and all of this then begs a really big series of questions to those of us on the left about Keynes and the argument about stimulus, you know, that have, having that argument, having that argument at all about whether we should have a stimulus or not, it's a an argument on capitalism's terms. It's an argument about how we make it efficient, and and the 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 kind of the arguments that we might have uh, that I've been discussing about the nature of Keynesianism, as in you know it is a it is a capitalist theory. It isn't a social democratic one. Um, that is then echoed, I think, in arguments that we can have about the um, about what we think the medium to long term political future looks like, because there are some people, particularly people towards the centre, who would say like austerity in the future isn't totally impossible. So arguing for Keynesianism is still a valuable political project, um, you know. What if Sunak starts tightening the purse strings? What if Johnson's forced to support that? What if they have a new leader? Um, what if Joe Biden, you know, actually has a much more kind of, uh, uh, you know, d- d- doesn't advocate for a stimulus uh, continuing um, uh, potentially? Um, that's very hypothetical. I'm not suggesting that he's indicated he'd do that. Point is. Um, those are all reasons why you might uh, want to carry on arguing for Keynesianism. And I the argument kind of from people a bit further to the left then is we've tried that kind of thing before. You know, the left has repeatedly spent political capital defending the liberal or the centrist status quo because what's seen as being the alternative, the nationalist right, is, is even worse. Um, so, you know, whether that meant like arguing for bank bailouts, for arguing for a fiscal stimulus and Keynesianism 10 years ago, 15 years ago, um, arguing for remain in, in, the, in the Brexit uh, debate, you know, even to some extent arguing for, for lockdown, defending lockdown on the system. It's not that any of those causes are wrong. I, I supported all of them, but rather they are totally insufficient for their various tasks and certainly totally insufficient for what the left believes in, in terms of a more free and equal society. But because we've been on the back foot, we have defended those causes. Um, and we still lost, you know, we've, we've done what was supposed to be the, the sensible thing and, and formed a, a coalition with liberals and centrists and still lost. So that suggests potentially that um, allowing the defense of Keynesianism to be anything like um, the a central aim of the left is, is, is completely 
the wrong way to go strategically. And so, you know, kind of some people on the left would say, you know, austerity economics has been totally discredited, so we don't even need to to argue for Keynesianism. And some people on the left would say, um, you know, actually, we've had enormous cuts to the welfare state. They've not mostly been reversed. So we shouldn't be arguing for Keynes, but we should be arguing for radical social democracy. Um, and, and that includes arguing for the reversal of cuts. So, you know, th this question of like, should we continue to argue for social democracy, which sounds a bit like arguing for Keynesianism, though it's not, or should we be taking the fight to, you know, a UBI and a four day week? Um, these are the big strategic questions posed for the left at the moment. So here's when I um, ask the, my big question. Hit me. Um, John Maynard Keynes, bad gay, good gay, bad not gay, good not gay. Uh, well, let's take the, the gay bit first. Um, I think, you know, definitely, as you've said, bisexual or queer is the appropriate word for him. Um, although, you know, he was almost exclusively gay in the first part of his life and straight in the second. Um, Sometimes it may be like that. Exactly, exactly. And was he bad? I mean, look, he was a liberal. He started off defending the empire, trying to adapt it so it could survive. Um, he was not an advocate for a more equal society. He dedicated his life to supporting and defending capitalism, very successfully adapting it so it could survive. Um, I, I believe very strongly that all of that stuff is bad stuff. Um, you know, sure, he was never going to become a communist, but it's not like there wasn't a social democratic movement for him to, to join. But then I also have to admit, you know, as long as we live under capitalism, I want it to have the gentlest possible downturns. I want it to have a high employment um, and the smallest trade imbalances, the stable levels of inflation. Um, and that's what he was attempting um, and with a significant degree of success was achieving. Um, so, you know, he made a lot of people's lives better. And, and you add on top of that, like um, attempts to promote international peace and helping the arts. Ballet. I'm going yeah, to be cowardly. I'm going to say he's complicated. Complicated. A complicated bisexual. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Ricky, um, if people want to know more about John Maynard Keynes, um, what were some resources you used or, or be good books for them to go to? So the, the, the big uh, um, several volume uh, biography of Keynes by Robert Skidelsky is, is really the kind of the, the go to place. And Skidelsky is also really good um, uh, kind of more generally as an advocate for Keynes' ideas um, in uh, contemporary economics. Um, he's he's had recently quite a nice Twitter thread of like canes for beginners, and that um, sort of quickly goes into quite technical and theoretical um, points, but in a really interesting uh, way. So yeah, I think uh, Skidelsky person to go to if you want to know more about canes. You've been listening to Bad Gaze. If you want to read more of Richard's work, you can follow him on Twitter at Power Said, or his book, 1997, The Future That Never Happened, is out now from Zed Books. You can follow me at Hugh Lemmy and follow the podcast at Bad Gaze Pod. You can also find us online at badgazepod.com or support us on Patreon, 
patreon.com forward slash bad gays pod. Bad, 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 bad,